When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Uh, well, we'll talk about, can you cut this out? go <laughs> you got it on your own so i'll hit you with that once we get rolling here um but uh pleased to have with us today uh on whatever never mind chris sinzak of the uh decibel geek podcast uh, a show largely started and primarily influenced by uh cobras and fire if i understand it right <laughs> that's a good one yeah, thanks <laughs> yeah thanks a lot mitch at least he didn't squeeze in the last name we're still covered then before we get into it of course uh decibel geek is uh uh home to yourself and aaron camaro and uh you you at one point used to get some regular contributions to your website from myself and loose cannon how are things at decibel geek uh, are we going to see a or hear a, a, an upcoming show where you guys are actually in the same room together <laughs> that's a good question i don't know when the lockdown started Aaron you know Aaron's got his in-laws living there and I'm that's I'm probably sharing some inside baseball I shouldn't but his in-laws live in a different part of the house and you know it's one of those things where it's like everybody's trying to be safe so um we haven't recorded together since I think March and uh I'm I'm just sort of waiting for the word to come down that yeah come over and and do it. I don't really mind doing it remotely because I get to drink more while I record so that's more fun. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be in the same room again anytime soon. But uh, we are getting into we're we're looking into doing some live streaming, and uh, our good uh, friend Rock and Ron Runyon is going to help come on board with that. And, that sounds uh, like a train wreck, man. Well, you know, <laughs> we figured Rock and Ron would be the moderator of the questions and oh, everything, boy. so it could be nothing but entertaining. So uh, fair enough. So yeah, so we'll uh, we'll be looking into doing some. Some live stuff for Decibel Geek soon on the on the net. Well, I, what about maybe you have you looked at maybe buying some audio recording equipment on your end and uh, doing kind of a mashup thing that uh, Luce and I do? What do you mean? You know, like I send a, or he we send our audio track. We each independently record ourselves. I actually had Aaron do it when he was on for uh, Mad Season, so I get his audio. It's just a nicer sounding, uh, more pleasant right. for the listener. You know. 
You mean this doesn't sound amazing right now? <laughs> well, you always sound amazing, but I'm just thinking, take it to that that extra notch of uh, of amazing Chris Sinzak. So that that sounds like work, but maybe we'll yeah, okay. It. <laughs> yeah, it, it does take it. It is a little a little extra effort, and uh, I, I I probably should say something mean to you before Craig Smith gets upset that I I was too much of a, a gush you know fest for you. You should give Toomey more shit because it was recently revealed that. Toomey hadn't listened to enough Cobras and Fire to pick up that you guys took Rob Halford's vocal where he goes, Toomey. Oh, my God. never heard that. That really bummed me out. Oh, that son of a bitch. He didn't have the butt (laughs) balls to tell me that. Because every time you've played that on the show, I've laughed my ass off. Oh, at least somebody enjoyed it. I I thought it might have been Toomey. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be inserting it right there when you said it, and now never again. Fuck you, to me. We are no longer friends. Um, At least I listen to the show, to me. <laughs> he's too busy recording nineteen podcasts a week. Yeah, no uh, shit. Whatever he's doing. Let's get a little bit into what we're talking about today. Coming in at number 14 on the Rolling Stones' greatest grunge albums of all time is Allison Chain's Facelift. It was released on August 21st, 1990. Did you know it was not certified gold until September 11th, 1991? Almost a, a little over a year later. I did not know. So it was clearly a slow grower. I, that's how I remember it. Um, I actually saw them on the Clash of the Titans tour uh, probably a, a month or two before I even bought the, this record. Um, uh, this didn't, I didn't grasp onto, um, we'll get into it more as we get into it, but the, the, the man in the box, uh, didn't connect with me as quick as, for whatever reason, I just didn't grasp to it. Cause when I did, this whole album became pretty much a staple for me. Produced by Dave Jordan, uh, 12 songs coming in at 42, 44, 54 minutes and two seconds. Uh, well, let me uh, back up a little bit here. Where do you come in with Alice in Chains? Uh, I, you you requested this record outright, so I'm guessing you had this pretty soon when it, after it came out. Uh, kind of. Um, you know, going through and doing a little bit of research myself on this, I didn't realize that We Die Young from like basically a demo version was uh, initially released to rock radio. Because I never heard, I never heard it when it was out. Of course, I lived in Nashville where radio blows, so of course I didn't hear it. But uh, I had uh, the reason. The way I came into this was a friend of mine who was a he was a friend of my brother's came into town and he had the CD and he and like he I heard the CD first through him. But I remember it was like it, it must have been the same week that I saw the the video for Man in the Box, and that was when I first. I mean, the video was couldn't have been more than two weeks old at the time. Nobody knew who the hell I, this band was. So, um, and like maybe like you, I didn't really connect super big with Man in the Box. I thought it was interesting, but uh, but like he played the rest of the CD for me, and I kind of fell in love right away with the rest of the CD. When they're getting ready to shoot the 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 video for Man in the Box, uh, Lane, this was kind of his song. So the director of it, uh, in back in the days of faxes, asked him to like fax me like some ideas you have for the the video. Mm-hmm. And this is the the word for word what the fax said: rainy, drippy barn, farm animals, baby with eyes sewn shut. So uh, apparently, the babies with eyes sewn shut was going to be a little too. 
too touchy, so they went with I think like basically an adult kind of Jesus kind of character. Yeah, yeah, ba- babies with eyes sewn shut is too touchy, but let's put Jesus with his eyes yeah, sewn yeah, shut. Exactly. <laughs> that won't I, offend anybody. <laughs> so I guess I would say I probably had the record close to a year after it'd been out. And I would think, man, there was a good chunk of time where this was a two-track record for me just because I like those songs so much. The way this album opens, the one-two punch with We Die Young and, and Man in the Box, I was hitting the, the back button on my fucking CD player quite a bit during that, you know. Probably playing like Tecmo Bowl and, uh, <laughs> you know, I was just, you know, getting annoying the people that I'm playing with and all that stuff. Like, fucking put a whole CD in or something like that. Tech tech Mobile, where Bo Jackson would score every time and he was white (laughs) during the celebration. Yeah, well, the original. uh, Oh, correct. Even on Techmo Super Bowl, right? If you want to get nerdy, there was two versions. Yeah. The The show's got high five in it, and it's white. Yeah, I think most of the black guys were. Like, it was the same graphic, they just switched the jerseys, but. Right. See? Oh, man. Um, God, I want to play some Techmo now. We should probably get into the record, though, here, uh, Chris. Uh, the, I kind of gave it away. I kind of like the first two tracks. The The album opens with We Die Young. forget hearing this riff for the first time and, <laughs> and I, I just was blown away by it because it was just su- it's such a beefy like heavy fucking riff and you know and like and i'll say this i'll probably say this a few times through our conversation sean kenny's drumming is like the kind of the unsung hero of this album yeah you know and uh everybody lo- loves lane's vocals loves jerry's guitar and the harmonies obviously we'll get into that but uh Sean Kenny's drumming is just fucking huge on this record, and I and I love this. I love the drum sound on this record. The drums are basically mixed, kind of like a hair band drum, a hair band album would have been mixed. Honestly, it's got really huge cannon sounding canyon yeah. sounding drums, and uh, but yeah, the riff on this thing, it's just it's like a sleazy, detuned monster of a riff, and. Uh, if this song doesn't grab you, then this album is not for you. Yeah, no shit. Um, that was the other thing that when I bought this, that like I, I was only familiar with Man in the Box. And we, there was this weird record store in Rochester, Minnesota. They would, to help prevent theft, they actually opened every CD, took the CD out and kept it behind the counter, which is always kind of a bummer because it's like I'm buying a brand new CD, but they've already taken all the... The, the fresh, smelly stuff away from me. You know, the long boxes and all that, whatever it was in. Um, man, I was, I mean, I, I think I probably just played fucking track two to begin with and then started over just, you don't get fucking better than We Die Young. Um, and you, you, you nailed it. That riff is like, I don't even know how the fuck you come up. Did you ever learn how to play this song? 
Yes. I mean, it, I, uh, it's so fucking fun to play. Oh, dude. I, we'll get into this, but yeah, the, this album had a, I, back when I was still a musician, this album was a massive influence on me. Yes. And I ripped off numerous riffs, vocal melodies, everything from it. I, I think uh, Alice in Chains and um, Soundgarden, because right around this time, I'm just turning 2021. 20, and, and now I'm thinking about like being in a band and stuff like that and, and writing my own songs. You know, my background being all this kind of poppy hair metal kind of stuff, uh, and, and then just kind of get into. But I've always liked the more serious topics that they talked about, you know, and and that's probably why I got into punk music and bands like Pink Floyd because it it, it still kind of gave me music I liked, but but talked about things that didn't that weren't so repetitious and stupid. And man, um, this record was a huge influence on me in that way. So was Dirt, but um, and and as a guitar player too, this was kind of when I started learning about uh, drop D tuning and all that kind of good yeah. stuff. And well, and yeah, when you learn about drop D tuning as a guitar player, you realize well, it's like you can do a whole lot more that you didn't think you could do. You yeah. know, you can <laughs> you can really kick out kick out some great riffs and and also like you know the whole theme we die young faster we run like when you're a teenager hearing that that's like a rallying cry you yeah. know it's you know of course it's it's kind of sad when you think about it in hindsight but um but it was uh this song just just kills man i mean I, yeah i remember when i first learned the riff i couldn't get enough of playing that song and I, I love when it um uh kicks up into that kind of that, that higher basic power chord with that watch where you sit yeah. just it, I mean, this song fucking grooves. I'm ready to give my rating. What uh, what have you decided? What's our grunge rating system today? We're we gonna have one or gonna have a bunch. What do you got for us? So I guess we're gonna have, we're gonna base it on zero to five Mike stars. <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> you don't get much more Seattle than than that. Yeah. Uh, I give it five Mike stars. It's a five, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's then- a perfect. It's a perfect album opener. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a perfect introduction to Alice in Chains, too, if you think yes. about it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the next track most people have heard probably too much um, is Man in the Box. I don't really don't crave this song too much anymore, but I got to tell you, when I listen to it, like if it's still on the radio, if I'm actually paying attention, I still kind of get fired up because it kind of builds to the solo. But then when Lane comes in out of that solo and just goes next level with that. that guy was good jesus yeah. christ you know, ah whatever but uh 
This is brilliant. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll spare people the, the, the drama. This is a five Mike star for me. What do you got? Well, this one, you know, it, it's, it's one of those that obviously a lot of, all of us in the nineties got burned out on this song. Mm-hmm. You know, that was cause it got played ridiculous amounts. Uh, it still gets played a lot on the rock radio, yeah. at least here. Um, Heard it but today. yeah, I, it's a great trend. Let me go ahead and say this. You know, I know Dave Jordan produced it. I don't know if Dave, Dave Jordan was the, deci- the the decision maker on the sequencing of this record, but this album is sequenced perfectly. Hmm. Like, um, because it got it has the fast, the slow, the you know, it's got highs and lows. It definitely the way. And back then, that was a real art, you know, because people would listen to full albums. Um, now it doesn't really matter much, but um, but back then that that actually made a difference how an album would flow from start to finish. Because you would put a CD on and you wouldn't want to get up and change it. So um, the fact that it would go from kind of the adrenaline pumping pace of We Die Young into kind of a nice groove metal track with Man in the Box made it. It was a great second track. Um, I like the song. I love the use of the talk box. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember at the time, um, Do You Feel Like We Do by Peter Frampton was getting played a lot on classic rock radio. <laughs> So I remember when I first heard it, I'm like, oh, they're doing the thing Frampton does, you know. Um, I thought that was cool. Uh, and and I will say this, Jerry Cantrell was... Show me a, the way, too. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> yeah, maybe not so much. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Jerry Cantrell's guitar solo, and, like, and the way I viewed it, I was already a Kiss fan by the time I got into Alice in Chains. So the way I viewed him was kind of ace fraley with more soul you know because there's it's a lot and a a lot of that goes back to jimmy page jeff beck and that type of stuff but i I know ace fraley was a direct influence on him so uh you got you've got the talk box but then jerry Cantrell's solo was like i mean this was the this was still the days of the shredding guitar player which i love i you know i've got becker cacophony i've got paul gilbert i've got racer x i've got all those albums but it was nice to have something where, you know, you take the foot off the gas and you actually kind of bend something and really, you know, let it ring out. And the solo on this song is great. Um, I remember the – I'll never forget seeing the video. I'm like, wow, Jesus' eyes are so shut. That's kind of fucked up. But uh, Goats walking uh, around. Yeah, and they're like playing in a bar. And it was like – it was it was unlike any video I had ever seen. And honestly, this video was more jarring to me than Teen Spirit was by Nirvana. Like, I mean – Nirvana. Oh, absolutely. Kinda, yeah. Absolutely. So it's so like Nirvana came in and that was different, too, because they're playing like a high school gym and everything. But this video was like, what the fuck is going on here? It was very different than anything else going on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, overall, I love the song. I don't really go back to it much because just because it's ingrained in my DNA right. at this point. But uh, it's a good groove rocking song. Uh, not as fun to play in guitar as a We Die Young. It's kind of boring compared yeah, to that. Yeah, and it's also also because if you don't have one of those talk boxes, you never really you gotta pull have it, it off. Yeah, yeah, otherwise it's just basic riff. You know? You've seen a, a cover band, I assume, play this song. with. Oh, sure. They'll use a wah or maybe one of those yep. whammy pedals that became popular I've, in the... I wah, played this wah. song in a cover band with a wah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I have too. I was not the lead guitar <laughs> player, so I just did the dang, dang. Yeah, a little more fun to sing than it is to uh, to play, but yeah. Um, uh, well, what's your rating? I, I, I don't keep us uh, waiting. I'll give it a four. Oh man, what do they got to do to get a five out of you? Sweet well, we got a five. Good point. 
Uh, well, that brings us to track three, Sea of Sorrow. Favorite track on the record? Really? I yes. Um, and that's saying something because I love dun, most dun, of this album. Uh, that's uh, yeah, I love the bluesy intro. It almost has a piano type. Yeah, sound I think to there it. is actually a piano for. The, is it a piano? Um, going back to 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 prep for this, I always was just picturing it more like a plucked guitar part, right? Mm-hmm. My entire life, it sounds like there is just a little bit of piano right away, yeah. and then the guitar comes, it might even be at the same time on top of each other, and then it builds up a little bit, but yeah. Well, that's the uh, the genius of Dave Jordan who produced it, you know, um, and let me, while we're on Dave Jordan, let me just mention, I, I read the, because I did a little bit of research for this, and uh, Dave Jordan, he had a great quote, he said that um, when they were like courting Dave Jordan to be the producer, he said, well, Metallica sped up Tony Iommi's riffs, and you slowed it down. And and Jerry Cantrell was like, "You get it. That's why you're getting the job." No, but that that kind of it kind of all encompasses because there is a Sabbath influence in a lot of this stuff. Well, in, in that book that I mentioned, this is called uh, "Shit." I, I thought I had it here. It's just like the the untold story of Alice in Chains or something like that by David DeSola. I'm um, sorry, I'm scrapping the title, but but they talk about that. And David Jordan takes a little bit of credit for slowing them down even a bit. I, I, I don't think he's not claiming that they were playing like Man of the Box at Slayer speed, but he was saying right. like even a beat or two a minute to him made a lot of difference in, in kind of creating that Alice in Chains kind of sound. So uh, it is a brilliant sounding record. Yeah. Uh, and before I forget, you mentioned Sean Kinney's a drummer. Did you know he uh, broke his wrist in a fight before yeah. this record started? Uh, and uh, they tried to use a, f- a fill-in drummer, and he ended up just taking the the bandages off and playing through it. Yeah, they said the uh, the guy from Temple of the Dog was going to play. There the we record. go. And um, and it was it just wasn't happening. And like the record company got excited because they were like, we got to get this out because they were really getting hyped on it. And Sean Kennedy was like, well, fuck it, just put a bucket of ice next to me, 
and he would ice his hands down in between <laughs> in between takes, which is crazy. Imagine playing drums with a broken hand. That's crazy. Yeah. Um. But uh. But yeah, this song. This is my favorite song on the record, just because this song has so many facets to it. You know, it starts out mm-hmm. real bluesy sounding, and then Sean Kenny does that little tom build up, and then it launches into basically straight up hard rock, where you know he's like. Um, I can't remember the lyrics right now, but the, yeah, but you know what I mean? The pre-chorus is incredible with that, you open fire. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. A, yeah, that's almost ACDC, yeah, you know? It's, oh, and it's even got the cannon sound going off in the song. Yeah. You know, it's like grunge bands later would never even attempt something like that. So it was like, it was kind of undiscovered territory where it's like, we can play around, do whatever we want. And uh, but I love that. And the, it's Jerry Cantrell's best solo on the record. I know he thinks Love, Hate, Love is his favorite solo on the record, but his solo on Sea of Sorrow is fucking perfect. It's just it's incredible. This, the song and also at the end, you get the part where Mike Starr starts doing that pulsating bass line yeah. that adds a lot to it. And then as it's fading out, then you get Jerry Cantrell going in with like kind of a thrashy riff part where he's chunking along with it. Little things like that make a difference to me. So it's one of those things where it's like they build and build and build, and it's building as it fades out, and you almost want more, yeah. but it's a great way to end the song. And I, th- I think Mike Starr's contributions to this band were missed. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have a big problem with Michael Inez, but uh, I just think that there's something changed with the sound a little bit. And it, um, you know, in the book they talk that it sounds like I'm, I get the impression Jerry never got along with Mike. And Mike was a bit of um, like he uh, like he he put on a false front like you know he you know he was probably one of the better looking guys in the band so he did better with the ladies and that probably right. pissed off Jerry uh, especially when he had no respect for him as a musician there was a song oh it got left off of dirt we won't need to get into that I'll save that for the dirt episode but um, but like he had a guy come in. Uh, basically, uh, Dave Jordan contacted the person. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't the guy from Mother Love Bone, but um, that. But uh, he had bought all of his bass gear from. Uh, and the guy comes in, he dials it in, and Jordan's like, "There it is. That's the song we're looking for." And apparently, Mike had a tendency to just fuck with the knobs a lot. I'm sure you play with musicians like that. Yep. That between every song, there for some reason, even though they're they're just changing their overall tone, they duct taped it, uh, put duct tape across <laughs> the front so that, like, while they recorded this record, just leave that. That's the perfect sound. But uh, yeah, there's some times where it seems like he was like, you know, just really. Kind of sheepish and, and didn't feel confident on both the records that he recorded with them, this and dirt. But uh, yeah. uh, it's it's too bad uh, how things ended with him as well. But uh, yeah. this song for me, I I agree with everything you said. All the one thing different is so far out of these three songs, this is my third favorite. But oh, really? it still gets five Mike stars from me. We're five all the way. What do you got? Oh, well, you know, if I could give it ten, I would. But yeah, five. Well, you can't, well if you if you had been listening, I you can rate it however the hell you want. So you oh, okay? You, I'll give it ten then. <laughs> all right. So this is ten Mike stars for you. All right. Up next is Bleed the Freak. Fly. When the city lies bolder, I'll pluck 
Uh, this is my prop. This is probably my second favorite song on the record. I love this one. This is, you know, and I don't know if other people hear this the way I do, but like the uh, kind of the droning opening riff kind of has a Hell's Bells type vibe to it. You know, it's a little bit of ACD, ACDC type vibe to it. Just kind of uh, moody sounding. Yeah, okay. And then the whole the whole line, uh, my cup runneth over like blood from a stone. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. Um, which is a lot of a lot of Lane Staley's lyrics. I don't really understand what exactly they mean, but I like them. Yeah. So, and I'm not a lyrics guy, but for for some reason with his lyrics, I would always pay attention. Um, I love this song. I love that it comes. I love the way the it kind of comes in with the chorus early on. And uh, the main verse riff is really heavy. You know, I like that. Jerry's solo is great on it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 and then of course it's got the little slow part in the middle of, you know, where it kind of goes half time. Yeah, that's cool. The whole, the whole bleed for me part. And then it builds back up to the chorus. That's kind of a hard rock trick that they put in there that you wouldn't normally hear with grunge songs. So this song is another one of those where it's kind of a bridge between hard rock and grunge. I think they benefited by not breaking right away. Like, because they yeah. were just in that time when Slaughter was just coming hot. You know, yep. if, if, if they would have had, like, or even like, wasn't Cherry Pie a 1990 record? I think so. Yeah. So, like, that. this is that time, you know, where, where that's still kind of the, the main thing. And the fact that they kind of broke after that was kind of starting to dwindle down helped them. Because I think they might have been kind of dismissed a little bit if they would have had, like, you know, instant success with the record. Right. And then once, you know, Nirvana kind of, you know, released their stuff, I don't know they would have been brought along. They would have probably been treated more like Queensryche than fucking, you know, Soundgarden. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting band because. I don't know. Like Nirvana gets all the love, and obviously Pearl Jam still does to this day. But I mean, like it's you know, kind of in the hierarchy of the grunge of the big four of grunge, it always seems to be Nirvana, Pearl Jam, then Soundgarden, then Alice in Chains. I would reverse it. To me, yeah. it's Alice in Chains first, then Soundgarden, then Pearl Jam, and then Nirvana. Good point. Yeah, actually, that I would I would rank them the same way too. If if I was going personal preference, those. I mean, it's really close with Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. Uh, clearly, their, uh, Pearl Jam would be my third one. I've just never clicked with Nirvana. Um, mm. And, and there, yeah. there is an opportunity to talk a little bit on that coming up, too. This is now the... I would put this ahead of CSRO as far as my personal taste, but this is another five for me. Yeah, it's definitely a five for me. Up next, track five, we have I Can't Remember. Turn This one, the very opening kind of chords to this, it almost reminds me of like '80s Black Sabbath. Mm. If, if you're thinking like, um, oh, like Eternal Idol kind of era stuff. Huh. But um, what, did, what? Where does this album? Where does this song come in for you? I like it. Um, it's one of those that I didn't so much connect with when it was out when it was new. Um, I like it more as I've gotten older. It's, I, uh, but it's got such a nice uh, ambient 
acoustic thing going on at the beginning of the song. Um, it's different. I def my well, not really me, but me and the singer from my band, we ripped off the main melody from this song where I can't remember identity, and it's got that build on the on the the lyrical part. We we ripped that off for one of our songs. Not that we did it any better, believe me. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I like the the melody line in this song, and I like the acoustic part. It does kind of drag a bit. Um, it's definitely not my favorite song on the record, but I do like it. I never skip this song. It's always good, and I love the. Uh, the the bass tone on this song is real yeah. fucking heavy. You know, when when Mike Starr comes in with that low note, it's definitely it hits you in the guts. <laughs> um, but uh, I do love this song overall. Uh, not me so much. This uh, this there's two tracks that get get my lowest rating on here, and this is one of them. Um, I think it's real forgettable. I I, I don't look forward to hearing it. Uh, it does still resonate in that like it seems like it needs to be there, but I I just. I would have been okay with uh, the two songs I gave threes just being removed from this and being a 10-track record. Uh, that said, uh, I think I just said it, I, uh, three stars for me. I'd give it four. Yeah. It's, it's almost there. But it's, it's a good track overall for me. There are a couple of songs on here that I don't like. The next one would be another one for me, uh, Love, Hate, Love, which I know Jerry, you mentioned that he likes his solo. Jerry loves... Love, hate, love. I tried to love you. I thought I could. I tried to own you. I thought I would. I wanna build a skin from your face. Twenty-year-old me liked it a lot more than the forty-three-year-old me <laughs> likes it now. Um, when I was young, I really liked it a lot. Uh, well, actually, I guess the seventeen-year-old me because I was still in high school when I got this record. But uh, I, uh, I like. I mean, it's a good. It's a. It, it definitely at the time it was a mind blower of a song because you certainly didn't hear anything like this anywhere else. Right. And. And it builds, and this is another one we ripped off. We copped the, uh, the melody <laughs> line, especially the way it builds. You told me I was the only one. You know that we ripped that off for one of our. That was our our set closer in my horrible band that Josh Toomey still makes fun of to this day. Um, and what but, band uh, was that? It was called Primrose Way. And, and what we, was the song that that uh, you ripped off? What what did you call your version of this? Uh, it was called Black Eyes. It was. Uh, it was a song that me and the singer for the band we co-wrote, and um, it was about his girlfriend at the time in high school that was insane, and she got put away in an institution, and that's what the song was about. In fucking high school? Yeah. Damn. Yeah, she got committed when she was like 16. She sounds fucked up. Yeah, she's a lot of fun at parties. Um, but uh, And then the, she the name crazy of the band. crazy bitch? <laughs> yeah, she's pretty crazy. And uh, 
the name of the band came from uh do you remember uh dante's inferno the book yeah so that that was where the name came it was like it's this primrose way is like the pleasant tourist guide through hell was that on the third ring of hell that's a jesus chrysler tune i couldn't remember mm. the the singer came up with the name i just thought <laughs> okay. it was cool yeah but, actually uh, I don't, why did to me hates the name no, he just makes fun of it oh, because okay. somehow I mentioned it on the show that I was in a band called Primrose Way. Okay. Anytime I mention anything, he's like, oh, Primrose Way needs to reunite. I'm like, no, nobody, nobody needs to hear that. He's but, like um, that. But yeah, we totally ripped off Love, Hate, Love to do one of our songs. And uh, Why didn't you rip off I, one of the good songs? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I like the song. It's not that bad. Um, love, hate, love. Not a lot of work on the melody for that chorus, but. No, I mean, if it was a minute and a half shorter, I think you would like it more. It ah, dragged on for way too long. But I, I like the melody overall. But at this point in time, as a 43-year-old guy, I'll say I'll say it's a three Mike Stars. Ooh, your lowest rating so far. Yeah, this never grabbed me at all. The title even seems – I don't like the title, Love, Hate, Love. It just seems like – it seems like they had this music built – and that's why it's so long, and it's almost got that kind of epic kind of thing. And it's like Lane writes some lyrics, and this is the best he could come up with. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, Jerry talks about this quite a song, but I'm almost surprised it's not in their set list as much as I've heard him reference it. But yeah, um, but I can't, I can't see William Duvall singing this song. Yeah, I guess. Um, man, I don't know, just not a lot for me. I but again, three uh, three mic stars, so we're we're on the same rating there. But okay, we're just at the end of side one. Then Chris, before we get into side two, let's talk a little bit about the tour that they went on. Now their their first um, after the record was released, they were their first uh, slot was opening for Extreme, um, which apparently was kind of an odd pair. Well, it is an odd pairing, but. If you go back in time, the um, almost the way they've kind of tried to to set li- uh, tours up with similar sounding bands has gotten more and more you know I don't know, controlled. Where you know the, the further back you go, you might see Joe Walsh tour with like you know a Black Sabbath or something like that. Right. Um, but this is it is weird. And um, one of the things they talked about is that like extreme kind of came from that old school thinking of like you don't get no stage, you don't get no lights, you don't get no PA, that kind of bullshit that I've never really understood too much. Um, I understand that you can't bring your own full on light show and pyro and crap like that, but why why can't they use a decent amount of, and in PA especially? Why are you trying to make them not sound? You know, I mean, uh, it doesn't really affect when you're in the audience. I've never been at a show where I was like, "Oh, thank God, the headliner sounded louder than the the opener." You know what <laughs> I mean? Uh, it just it 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 doesn't uh, appeal to me. It just seems kind of shitty. But that's kind of an old school thing. But by the end, uh, the last date of the tour, they they decided that they could do whatever the hell they want because they're like, "What are you going to do? Kick us off?" And okay. apparently, like uh, Mike Starr vomited on the uh, he got too drunk and vomited on the drums. Um, and they were like just drinking and, and smoking and spilling shit everywhere on the stage. So, uh, clearly not fans of the extreme guys. They also thought they were really corny and cheesy. Um, I, I like extreme. I would have actually enjoyed to see this band with extreme. I don't, I, it would have been an odd pairing, but I could give a crap. Well, how about you? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, personally, I, I like a lot of extreme stuff too, but if I'm, if I'm in the mindset of Lane Staley 19, circa 1990, probably don't want to hear them doing Kid Ego and shit like that. Oh, on, absolutely, you know, so. yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I can see how it doesn't work. And then they also fucking open for Poison. Can you imagine an Allison Chains and Poison concert? That would have been a du- difficult one for me. I went to. I would have not dropped the ducats for that. Uh, did you? Well, you're a Poison guy. Did you go? No, I did not. I didn't get to see Poison until 1998. This still you would know, have been. This would have been pre. Um, Richie Cotson poison though still right. Yes. Okay. It was the fle- flesh and blood tour when CC was still in the band. Yeah. <laughs> but but I it's like unskinny bop and man in the box. What a weird combination. <laughs> oh man. Um. Well, I don't think these you know uh, these guys were actually um, worried. I mean, how does that even come about? I'm trying to think because poison probably Allison Chains isn't on, on Brett Michaels radar at this point you know what i mean well wait what would uh, what label was Allison Chains on was they were it on Columbia? Columbia yeah and if i remember right so was poison so there's your answer no they were capital <laughs> was it capital okay well then i don't know how those two get put up put together like uh, unless the guys in poison were like this is the future we need to latch on to it no no Brett Michaels especially who is a driving creative force in that band he latches on to trends five to six years after they're clearly popular. Yeah, just yeah. like Kiss does. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Uh, well, well, in fairness, uh, Kiss has never done a, a cover of uh, Sublime's What I Got. When you consider what time this album came out, um, Promoters didn't know what to do with this band. Yeah, they so, probably just seemed like a heavier version of of hair metal. Yeah, so they were probably just like, oh, I just throw them on there with Poison, throw yeah. them on there with Extreme. You know, they just and I mean they fit better on the Clash of the Titans tour, even though they're not a thrash band. Yeah, and that was kind of a weird billing. To, that one stuck out to me more, you, you know, because when I went to that, that that they were there, but uh, it sound wise it fit right in. They were great. Uh, they came out and killed it. Um, like I said, the, the crowd wasn't super into them, but they, they weren't fucking throwing shit and they weren't getting booed or pissed on and, you know, they were a decent amount of applause. And then the crowd got a little bigger once the day went on. That was a really fucking weird show though, Chris. It started at like one in the afternoon and I, it was an hour and a half drive from where I lived and the sun was just setting when I got home. So it was over at like seven o'clock at night. Wow. I, yeah, and it's an outdoor festival at this place called, um, Trout Air. Uh, it, it, it's, it's now, a, a like a, a horse racing track, but back then it was like, uh, dear, like I remember MTV, there was like some alternative band, uh, like festival going on there and they were there live years later. And like some of the bands were there fishing because there's like a, a stock trout pond that you can rent fishing poles in a boat and go out there. So it was all part of this whole thing. But yeah, wow. it was just weird that you're out here. And, uh, I remember Megadeth got the headlining slot because it was Minnesota and Dave Elvison's a boy, uh, our boy. Yeah, so, hometown guy. Yeah. Um, and I remember uh, uh, Dave Mustaine complaining like, yeah, I'm sick as hell. I was going to cancel, but it's Junior's home homecoming. So, And it's like, in, in fairness, Junior lives about six hours away from here, Dave, but... Uh, that's like that's never a good move. Like you really think you're gonna win the crowd <laughs> over going saying something. That's like I went and saw Hall and Oates last year, and John Oates, the like you know Daryl Hall goes, "Hello Nashville, I hadn't played here in a while." And John Oates gets on the mic and goes, "Yeah, I live here now." And Daryl Hall gets up back on the mic and goes, "Yeah, that's why we're doing this show." Ah, oh, Jesus! And then he got booed for the rest of the night. <laughs> that's too bad. I'm sure he meant well. 
he's that. He's a fucking asshole. Daryl Hall? <laughs> yes. God, he got oh, dude, salty about that. Whole, uh, that whole, that whole show was a clusterfuck, dude. Those guys were actually fighting on stage. It was crazy. Nice. I like the fact yeah. they don't like each other. Fuck John Oates. Who the fuck he think he is? Daryl Hall? He seems like a cooler guy than Daryl Hall, though. Yeah, he's just shorter. That's all. Uh, <laughs> he's got the mustache, though. Give him that. They did. They, they jumped on with Iggy Pop for a while, which is always weird to me because I, I think of Iggy Pop as like this thing. This this existing this thing. I don't I don't recall him as a musician or like a productive guy. I know he's got his history with the Stooges and stuff like that. Yeah. But but in 1990, I'm like, you're just this guy that MTV props out for jokey bits and stuff. Yeah, and, he was a novelty. Uh, so it's weird that he was actually on tour. And uh, apparently at a Thanksgiving stop, wherever they were at, they they met up with Prong and Pantera at it. That they're all in the same hotel. And like basically, like they're they were just waiting for the bar to open so they could go watch football and get hammered all day. There's a pretty good story in that book about that, but that would have been kind of fun. Iggy Pop and Allison Chains. That's a it's a strange combination. <laughs> well, apparently Iggy was nicer to him than Extreme. He, he let him use pretty much all the lights in the PA. But he seems like a good guy. Yeah. Uh, one of the funner facts I came across is that this um, what what helped break Man in the Box is that MTV decided to make it part of it. It at the time coveted Buzzbin. Do you remember the Buzzbin videos? I do. It was supposed to be kind of an up and coming, hot new thing, and then it would get yep. like a regular rotation. Do you know who? It was down to two bands. Uh, I'm guessing you don't know who the other one is, but uh, it was between them and Blue Murder with Jelly Roll. Oh, um, I love that song. I do too, but what a weird. I'm like, I don't understand the decision here. This aging, uh, these two, <laughs> these two aging guys who are both just members of everybody's band on a project that's clearly not going to last. Right. Uh, it, 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 as cool as it is, I like that first Blue Murder record, and I love that song, Jelly Roll. But you know, uh, it, it, it's just funny the idea that MTV execs were sitting there going, "What do you think, uh, Blue Murder or Alice in Chains?" It's just uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of odd. I'm just I'm amazed that Blue Murder made the buzz bin. I never knew that. Well, they didn't. Uh, Alice in Chains took it. It was uh, oh, the, the, that was their last chance. They'd still be together. <laughs> Chris, oh, if they got the buzzbin so. slut. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, John Sykes. He quits yeah. a band before they make it to the rec- recording studio, that's, for Christ's that's sake. That's true. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's Vinnie Vincent-level genius. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> probably a better guy. Uh, <laughs> and then, I've uh, heard stories. <laughs> I, I, I've heard a lot of talk from... Um, the Van, they did a Van Halen tour. I think this was, was... Was this Balance at the time? No, no, no. It was before that. For Unlawful Cardinal no. Knowledge. Yeah, it was the the fuck record. Yeah, okay. So they they, they toured with uh, the uh, Van Halen during that, and I know Eddie and um, uh, uh, Jerry got uh, they developed a friendship at the time. And yep. I Jerry told the story about after the tour, he got home and his garage was filled with a bunch <laughs> of you know Eddie Van Halen amps and guitars. So uh, or yeah. Eddie would whip out a, a couple of Allison Chains riffs if he saw Jerry standing on the side of the stage or something like that. Um, but yeah, this this is also notable because apparently on this tour is when uh, Lane Staley's girlfriend Demry or Demry introduces him to heroin, which of course we all know that how that goes. But uh, so too bad for that. But um, any other uh, Allison Chains touring memories you want to share before I get into some of these standard stock questions I have prepared for you? Well, I never got to see them on tour. Um, you know, it was. Uh, even, even kinda, recently or 
Well, I mean, there's a. I'll explain that. Okay. I mean, like, I I, I was going to see them in 93 or 4. They were supposed to open for Metallica on the Binge and Purge tour. It was going to be Metallica, Alice in Chains, and Suicidal Tendencies. And right as the tour was about to begin, Lane OD'd, and he had to go to rehab. And and I loved Metallica, obviously, but – and I had already seen – I saw Metallica on Injustice for All, but I didn't – I wasn't that hyped to see Metallica at that time. I was going to see Alice in Chains. I had bought tickets and everything, and – when they dropped off, they're like, "Okay, Candlebox is going to fill in." I was like, <laughs> "Oh fuck!" Allison Chain's light. Yeah, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't even give the tickets away. I tried giving, I, and then like a bunch of my friends were going, like, "Well, you should still go. We should yeah. go and hang out." So like, all right, I'll go to hang out with you guys. And this really pissed me off during the show. Is like midway through the fucking concert, the assholes in Metallica get up and start playing "Man in the Box." And they start smacking their fucking oh, arm, like making fun of a heroin abuser and like making fun of Lane Stale. And I get it. They're probably pissed because it's like they would have they probably would have made more money if Allison Chains was on that tour, I'm sure. But these fuckers, it's just like, you know, and like I didn't shed a tear for James when he went into rehab a few years later. It's like, you know what? Fuck you, dude. You know, that, that just to this day, it makes me mad to even think about it. But that's, uh, pretty, that's pretty cheap. Yeah, it was just bullshit. It's and like if they you did know, it where you were at. They probably did it a few other shows too. Oh yeah, I'm sure they did it everywhere. But it was just like, you know. And plus, you assholes are drinking a fucking case of beer each, you know, before your show. Let's yeah, let's make fun of addiction. Yeah. But um, but anyway, I I was that that whole show left a bad taste in my. I didn't see Metallica again until what two years ago on Death Magnetic or whatever. And um, but uh, you yeah, know, so I missed them that time. And then, as you probably remember, like the Kiss reunion tour got announced, and it was going to be STP. Then they dropped off because right. of Scott's problems. And then Alice in Chains was the first band, you That's know, at the right. beginning of the tour. And I almost went to Louisville because it was the first show after Detroit because I wanted to see both bands because I was a huge Alice in Chains fan at this time. <clears throat> and then. But I was like, oh, they'll hit Nashville eventually, and I'll see Allison Chains then. Well, of course, as you know, the band fell apart. Now, I, my recollection was that there was never going to be a long-term opener. Like I, I, I remember from the beginning, and I could be wrong because we're talking such a long time ago. Yeah. In my head, it was never going to be Allison Chains for the whole tour, even though. Well, I, I may have assumed that okay. incorrectly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, it, there was also this is not when the internet's available everywhere, or at least we're to the point where like you just want to know something, you, you you hit it right away. But I don't know how I would have known that. But which is why I, I have to question it a little bit. But you know, maybe it's just convenient, you know, well, recollection. And then every time after that, you know, of course, you know, Lane, Lane, the band broke up after that. Like Unplugged was great and all, but even watching Unplugged, you knew the band was done for just because. Lane was just not in good shape. Yeah, he didn't look and good. No. Sounded good. He sounded great. And like and I you know, I'm friends with Toby Wright and Toby says to this day that's one of his favorite things. That's the best performance they ever did. But but uh, you know, they came back with William Duvall and I li- I've liked certain tracks, but I just cannot bring myself to buy a ticket to watch them without Lane Staley. It's just it's not the same to me. And I and maybe I'm being an elitist or whatever, but it just if I'm gonna pay a Money for a ticket to see Allison Chains. Lane Staley needs to be the guy up there. 
They're pretty much the band you want to see at a festival, not at like your local venue on, on a tour stop. That that's how. So I, you've you've seen them with William? Yeah, but 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 only in that setting. I'm with you. If if they did, I don't recall them touring through here on any of the records they've done. Um, but I would not have not have gone. I saw Jerry solo, but yeah, and I'm sure William does a great job. And like everything I've heard, and yeah, and I even like the records, but overall. But it's just, it's just, it will never fully connect with me without Lane. Sure, no, he, he was too big of a part, and I understand that what they're doing and why they're carrying on. But sure. yeah, I would say with three records that they've done, they have one really good record out of those three. I uh, th- there's there's standout tracks that I really get into, but there hasn't been one. They, they sound a lot kind of like Jerry's solo career, where it well, just didn't kind of flesh out. Other, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go back to degradation trip on on this little experience here. I, I did not expect to uh, gravitate to that record now like I did. It, it is so much better yeah. than I gave it credit for at the time. Well, I love that one, and I love Boggy Depot. I think they're both really good. I, but... I didn't care for Boggy Depot other than oh, a really? few tunes, but uh, maybe no, I need to I like go back and check one. that out now. So, But I will say the um, you know the title track from Black Gives Way to Blue, that about brought me to tears. Yeah, you know that's it's about, pretty heavy, it's a, man. It's, it's about Lane, and that's, that's one of the most heartfelt things I've ever heard. Yeah, it really it now he he credits it to being about Lane and Mike now, but I'm convinced based on reading that book that it's more um, about his relationship with Lane. Not not yeah. to take a cheap shot at Mike, but I don't um, think he was ever close with him. But yeah, I was gonna say you're right. I don't I don't ever I've never had the feeling that Jerry and, and Mike were like best buddies or anything. I got I have to read that I think he just didn't like him that much. I mean we've all been in bands. You know, it's it's great for the first ten practices, but you know things start to flesh out, and you start to realize people aren't that compatible. And do do you have some something you want to get about trouble yeah. off your chest? Yeah, right Treb- now? trouble's a fucking asshole. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, no, nah, he he's clearly not the one I've, I I'm talking about. Uh, I know. I'm just talking with you. No, he's a good dude. Uh, he, I wish I would have started a band with him ten years before I did, uh, <laughs> or, or started the band with him. I should say he came in about ten years in, but. Uh, I will tell you, I was going to wear my Jesus Chrysler t-shirt today, but it's actually in the dirty laundry right now. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Uh, it's all good. Well, let me ask you this. How, when, when grunge first happened, what were you listening to leading up to? Let's let's just use Nevermind as, as, as the time time place. So leading up to that, what was the regular kind of things you were, you were spinning? Well, see, to me, it was – I thought it was a great time in music because – I was so like so 1990. I was 13, going on 14. So to me, it was a, an amazing time of discovery for stuff. So I was still listening to Dokken, Motley Crue, Kiss, obviously tons of Kiss because like Hot in the Shade was the first album I bought on release day. But at the same time, I had gotten into thrash metal. I'd gotten into Metallica, Megadeth, all that stuff. Um, I I was in the Pantera pretty early on. Cowboys from Hell came out, and a friend of mine let me hear by Demons Be Driven. That's right. That was and 1990. I got, yeah, and I got really into, into Pantera. So I was into that. So I was into all that stuff, and then Grunge came in at the same time, and S- Smells Like Teen Spirit never hit me like it should have. Everybody that I knew loved it, and I was like, ah, it's okay. And I and it's funny. It's one of those things. I remember at the time, I was taking guitar lessons about a year before, and my guitar teacher had you know given me the first Boston record, and he was like, mm-hmm. "This is all you, you like. This is rock and roll personified. You need to learn how to play this stuff." Boston, you're talking about? 
Yeah, Boston, the first Boston record from 76. And the first time I heard Teen Spirit, and it's funny, it was confirmed later on in an interview with uh, uh-huh. Kurt Cobain that more he ripped off More Than a Feeling. And I remember yeah. the first time I heard it, I'm like, it sounds like More Than a Feeling, like out of tune. But yeah, so like, you know, you've, you've got kind of a, ra- a great convergence of glam metal, thrash metal, grunge. And then you've also got other, you know, kind of oddity bands like the Chili Peppers and stuff like that hitting at the same time. I love the the variety of it all. So to me, I had a good time listening to everything at the time. So I didn't really. It was weird because like I I I started playing in bands not too long after this, and I, we would be playing covers of Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains songs. But I had a fucking like tiger stripe guitar strap because I love George Lynch. <laughs> I had a, a pink Ironbird with black tiger stripes on it uh, during the this time. So yeah, so like in Ironbird, that's a great guitar. And um, but like I would get shit for that all the time. They're like, "Oh, you fucking hair metal guitar strap! What the fuck? Get it just a regular color." I'm like, "Fuck you! I want to play, you know, Motley Crue rules, and so does Pearl Jam." Yeah, but like, like we would cover Porch by Pearl Jam and Garden and stuff like that. And um, but yeah, I was kind of the wacky person in my group that wouldn't kind of, str- I w- I wouldn't stray from what I liked. I would like different things and. And like you know, they'd be like, "Oh well, you if you like the new Pearl, because the, the first Pearl Jam record, have you done that on the show yet? Not yet. No, that's that's pretty high on the list. I would volunteer myself for that if you don't have a person. But um, that first Pearl Jam record is incredible. I would love that, and we would cover songs off of it. And then I'd be like, "Oh, have you heard the new Dawkins record?" And they'd be like, "Fuck you!" And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> I'm like." Why do why do we have to take so so many sides on genres? It's like you know, fuck all. You can like everything. I think probably because I I definitely understood at that time why it was like that. It was very much I understood why it was funny to throw darts at Kip Winger in a Metallica video. Oh sure. Uh, yeah, uh, but I was older. You know what I mean. I think it would have been really difficult for me because I. But if I if I had been your age, but like when I was your age, everything I liked people hated anyway. You know, right. I mean, I, I, I Kiss was never popular in my little social group. There was, you know, I would go to my cl- I had 40 classmates. One other one liked Kiss. We got made fun of all the fucking time. And so I was I, I never really had that thick, uh, the big of a problem liking things other than wanting to hide it from the cool kids. But I got it. I mean, I and, and, and regrettably so because I bought in 100%. And I'm not going to carry on too much because I've covered that a lot on, on, on previous episodes. But to me, I almost switched gears. It was like, nope, I kept Kiss. I kept Thrash and everything else. I'm going to the UCD store, man. I gotta, I'm got i going to sell all my Motley Crue and Dokken and get the latest <laughs> you know, Pearl Jam release or whatever. You know, Guns N' Roses kind of carried through that too. But, right. Um, what they about like after one, they were like the one rock and roll band that you could safely still yeah like. and until Kurt Cobain made fun of them but uh, that's true <laughs> um, let me ask, you you kind of touched on it but after grunge broke did you were you kind of slowly into it or were you like yep this is kick ass and so was the new docking yeah that was me I mean I I I didn't view it really as different genres you okay. know a lot of people did at the time but. You know, although like my girlfriend at the time was really into Blind Melon. You yeah. remember Blind Melon? Yeah. And um, certain things like that, like some of the stuff that got real big on a massive scale, I would kind of shun because it just irritated me. 
But I, I never got into Blind Melon, but I got to tell you that guitar solo, that kind of acoustic thing on uh, their big hit "No Rain," that yeah. is. There's some pop perfection as far as guitar I mean, playing it's, that. It, it's fine, but I got just fucking sick of it. But uh, well, you know that that vocal on there. You know, everybody talks about Shannon Hoon. Well, not everybody. At the time, he got a lot of credit for kind of being this new kind of breed of whatever, right? That guy has got a saturated as fuck, you know, vocal with some kind of modulation on there. I don't know if it's just a chorus or a flange or something, but it it is one of the, it's the opposite of clean. It, today, yeah. he they would use auto tune or something like that to kind of. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I I don't know that this guy was any good or not. And right now, yeah. every fucking the, all, all eight of their fans are like, you haven't heard soup. Oh uh, yeah, thanks for that fucking tip. Uh, I still I have a copy of that record to this day, but I, I mean I like Soup, but I didn't care for the uh, whatever the one No Rain was on. I didn't like, um, but Soup had that song Galaxy, which is a great song. That is a but, much uh, better song. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, God, I mean fucking Blind Melon, anything that got like massive saturation level, and that's probably what turned me off to Nirvana. And you know, maybe I'm being a anti poser or whatever, but like if it got massive, I would hate it. It just used to bug me because like I would listen to Alice in Chains, like you know, we'd listen to Facelift and Dirt and stuff like that. And then other people would be playing, you know, Where Did You Sleep Last Night by Nirvana going, This is genius. And I'm like, What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you've been doing your podcast almost 10 years now. I know you've been chomping at the bit to answer a question. I guarantee you've answered on your own show. Did okay. it did it, care, did it kill hair, hair metal? The grunge itself did not kill, cure, kill hair metal. The industry killed hair metal. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I hate to make this, I hate to admit this, but it's true. I mean, like, whatever the powers that be, i.e. MTV, Top 40 Radio, Spin Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, those powers that be decide what is going to be big. And I hate to say that, but it's true. You so, know, um, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I, the, the only, um, the only thing that I disagree with in that is like people still have to buy it. So it can't just be anything. Cause there's plenty of examples of bands that got a really heavy push that never connected. Uh, they're not always right, it, is what I'm getting. Yeah, but that that's the exception, not the rule, Baco. No, I, mean, I would like, say it, that's I would say the exception is Nirvana and no, bands like no. uh There was a concerted push to push bands like Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Selgar. There was a concerted push through the industry. It was one of those things where it was blowing up on a small scale. They saw what it was and they were like, Well, if it's doing this well in Seattle, you know, wherever it was. So it's a conspiracy. Then, well, not, I'm not. That's very to. 2020 of you. Well, don't don't make me. I'm not. I'm not gonna put fucking tinfoil on. You my just head, put but, a a collusion claim against all the record companies too. No, but but like what the big fucking. I hate to admit this, but and like you and people like you and me and Aaron Camaro and yeah. and Devin don't follow what the powers that they say you should yeah. listen to. Right. But the majority of people out there do. I mean, it's it's fact. Why else would a song called Wet Ass Pussy be a big hit right now? Come on. Is, oh, is that WAP? Yes. Okay, Cardi B. Uh, one of yeah. my favorites. Yeah. yeah. How would you know? God, yeah. yeah, give me a break. Well, she's got so much talent, man. <laughs> she's got a great ass. I'll give her that. But um, uh, She's making strippers everywhere. I feel like they can be more, they can contribute more. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can change things with your ass. But no, I mean, it, it, it was true. I mean, like, you know, the listen to Janie Lane's old story, you know, he goes into the cap or capital or whatever office one week yeah. and it's 
Warrant Cherry Pie goes in the next week. Allison Chains Dirt. That shit is real. That doesn't real. piss you off, though. Like, it literally, it, it wasn't one week. A week ago, we were, you were our, our darling. No, you know what, man? You were writing shit like Cherry Pie, and that's kind of part of the issue. I don't know why it, I'm debating. This you, is your time. But you honestly don't think that record companies, they will use up what you have, they'll make a hit off of you, and then they will toss you to the side like garbage? You don't think that really happens? Oh, it definitely happens. Um, uh, I, I, but I also think that they don't get rid of cash cows because a lot of really big, big money. Oh, sure they do. They make well, more actually, money. they do it all they the time. What am I talking about? Make, no, dude, they make more money off one or two hit wonders than they ever do fostering a long term career because you got to pay that much more out if it's a long term career. No, you're at, you're one hundred percent right there. I, I misspoke. Uh, uh, th- I can come up with countless examples. I remember like of where. It, like this new boss comes in and like, well, even though we've already given you $500,000 to record the record and you've been promised another $500,000 in promotion, we are going to sandbag this so it doesn't succeed. So then we can cut you and won't have to bring you back in for the next project. So, yeah, it's of still, course. It's still, that, still cheaper than fostering a career where you have to pay out that much more. Oh, sure. Over, over a decade. No, I was agreeing with you on that. I, I, I think, uh, yeah. That was the point. Well, I don't even know what the, to make of the shit now, where someone like Billie Eilish, you know, sells out uh, eight thousand seaters before a record is even released. Um, the, the industry has just turned it into this, where it's almost like ticketing and and merchandise is is more about it, you know. And that's why you know you, you have no idea who who this person is, and all of a sudden they're the hugest thing. Yeah, well, that that's what it's about. It's about maximizing profit on a short-term amount of time to where they can't get too big for their britches, and then you can toss them out like yesterday's garbage and then move on to the next flavor of the week. I mean, and like, you know, so, some people... Then how do you this. explain Beyonce? People still care about that talentless hack. Well, because she's married to a guy who's high up in the satanic leftist cabal. Oh, we're in the Illuminati. Right. More so the conspiracy. the Illuminati is backing her and him, so therefore they can keep going. A lot of triangles in her videos. A lot it's of triangles. Sad. It's sad that I have to say I'm kidding, but I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, we're, we're on Skype right now, people. He shook his head uh, like no while he said he was kidding. So, yeah. The conspiracy. I'm, I'm sitting. I'm sitting in lotus position with a triangle over my head. Well, did, I, I I jumped on you a little bit there. Like I said, I'm not sure why. This is your time. Did I? Did you, Did you get your your full point made on uh, whether what? or not <laughs> on whether or not grunge killed hair metal? I just if there's I any don't. Mo- it's a combination of things, dude. It's like, it's like you you can't say it's one thing, and but the majority of it is the industry decided to push something else. You know, it was like you know this is happening in Seattle. So let's go with it. And then at the same time, though, they had wrung out everything dry with the hair metal thing that you could. You got Pretty Boy Floyd and bands like that. King of the Hill. Good God. (laughs) Even worse than Pretty Boy Floyd. Um, Great cartoon, but terrible band. But uh, like, you know, you you got to that. It got to that point where they had kind of wrung the the dish rag dry, and you know, it became a whole cookie cutter formula. It was like, okay, you've got to release the power ballad, and then that's going to be the hit. Where it got to the point where even good power ballads were not were getting ignored because it was just such a, a fucking tried out method. You're you're a big power ballad guy. Do you have? I'm putting you in the spot here, so if you don't have it, that's okay. 
Do you have an example of, of a song that you thought was a great power ballad that got ignored during this time? Oh, sure. Um, Bad for Each Other by Shark Island. Okay, one I've heard. <laughs> but one I can remember. You haven't, you haven't heard that one? I've definitely heard that whole record, but I... I, I give um, me... Tora Tora put out Wild America in 92. They had a song God, called it was Time that late, Go- huh? Yeah, Time Goes By. It All sounded right. like a test. It was like a Tesla ballad. Okay. That was a good one. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, uh, let's get back to Facelift. We have side two coming up here. What a great way to open up the second side of the cassette. It ain't like that. I ripped this one off also for my man. Because um, I love the whole downstroke of, you know, sweeping against the screen. Right behind the, the pick hand. Yeah. It's just such a, it's almost like a, it's like if there was sleaze grunge, this is what that song would be. Um, I love the song. Um, Another fun one to play, like you were talking yeah. about. But, uh, yeah, super easy. No, no, the way you described it. Now, I I was taught to pick the, uh, the, the, the down pick on that. Behind the fretted chord, if I'm showing it like that, that would kind of yeah. gives it that kind of uh, I don't know uh, chambery melodic effect. Well, where you like you hold the the finger barely above the strings and get the harmonic sound yeah, you, out. You, you yeah. fret the the first chord and then hit it right, right. behind the hand. So yeah, okay. I used to do that, okay. and uh, yeah, we we ripped this one off. It's a good song, it, although I will say this one it doesn't have a lot of changes in it. So after the first couple of minutes, it kind of wears itself yeah. out for me. You can I learn it, it real quick. Four, yeah, I would give it a four out of five. I gave it four out of uh, five. Mike stars too. Uh, this was uh. Like I said, it was another fun one to play at the time. And this is back when cover bands would play current tunes, not just old ones. Uh, mm. that, that's another thing that's kind of been lost. Really a cool guitar solo in this one, too. One of my more favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, solos of Jerry's on this record. But It's anyway. good. And I have the whole, in my life, not forgotten, feel as though a tooth is rotten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Line. Yeah, some really good lyrics here. Uh, this one, this is one that was a grower on me though. I like it was not one that connected with me early on, and and then when yeah. it did, it was like fuck, that's great. And then when it's I saw great, them, uh, they, they did it. I think they play this in that movie singles. Uh, yeah, they did. It's a great uh, side opener for sure. Yeah. What about sunshine? Yeah. 
This is uh, one of the two songs that I do not like on this record. Wow. It does. It just doesn't do anything for me. And I know. I, th- I believe it's about Jerry's mom, who had passed away recently. When in which that kind of adds a little bit of dimension to it. But I don't know. This song just never really connected with me. I. It, this is one of the two songs that I usually skip on this record. I, I, I'd have to give this like maybe a two. Bummer. I love that opening riff. I don't even know what the hell's going on there. It it's, sounds like sunshine when he plays good it. Good point. It's a tad southern rock sounding. Excuse me. But I mean, I guess the riff I like. Maybe I'll bump it to a three. But sunshine. it just doesn't. It just doesn't really go anywhere though. It just kind of meanders. You're not going anywhere. Nice one. That's true. I gave this one four. Uh, yeah, so we're definitely not on the same path here. Four Mike stars for me on this one. Up next, we got Put You Down. I can't see what the cost will be. You know, I don't need you. I just can't put you down. I can't see what it all means to me. Honey, I don't need you. I just can't put you down. So did you say that Lane Staley got turned on to heroin after this album was made? Yeah, uh, according to that book, it was during the Van Halen tour. Just and he went into rehab the first time after Sap because the lyrics on this song sound totally like he's singing about heroin. Huh. I don't need you. I just can't put you down. It sounds just like he's singing about heroin. I thought it was about a woman, but uh, but uh, it's a. Uh, and then, like speaking of Southern rock, this Excuse is like because Jerry Cantrell grew up on old school country yeah. and you know Southern rock stuff like Skinner and Thirty Eight Special, and this has a very Leonard Skinner guitar riff to it, and that's what I love about it. It's like, and you never think a band from Seattle would come up with a riff like this, but it's definitely it's, it sounds like something Skinner would have done. I love this mm. song. I'm going back to your thing about the the lyric because that that's like I can't see what it might cost to me. That yep. could be a, a drug reference like that. It's got to be, but a it drug could reference. also be taking your woman shopping. Yeah, but you God, hand her the the, the the credit card and she comes out with three bags and you're like, I don't know what it cost. You've been hanging out with LC too much, <laughs> or my wife. Yeah. <laughs> she likes yeah, to shop get- and she works in a mall. Yeah, but we haven't even gotten to the last song of this record, and you know what that's about. Okay, well we're we're, we're coming up on it. Um, I'm with you. I love this tune. This is this is it got that that great dune. There's I get the southern rock thing, but there's something very not southern about the way it sounds and the way they play it. Like it, it you know, I think like the, the way you describe it is almost more like if you were teaching it, these are the same notes and something like that. It right. might might have to do with the tuning or or just the guitar tone or something like well, that. But it, it definitely it, sounds different. It's tuned down. But like another thing, I want to point out, like it, like after the after the solo, it gets to a point where he starts playing. Jerry starts playing the same riff, but he modulates it up. One step and then two steps. Oh, nice! Now which that's is, a classic rock kind of thing to do. Alice Cooper did a lot is, of that, and uh, yeah, and like that you would normally from a grunge album, you wouldn't hear that type of thing. Uh, so it's like one of those things where like they took risk on this record that after the after 1990, those types of bands were not allowed to take those risks. You know, one thing about this record that definitely does separate it from kind of that that hair metal stuff 
is is the beefiness to the guitar tone and allowing that to be thick, but more, more importantly, the bass actually having a presence. Um, yeah. a, lo- a lot of those, like a, during the '80s with the, with the the glam metal, that was you know not really a thing. It was a very compressed bass, didn't really st- you know come up front, and, and that became kind of a calling card for grunge. Yeah, uh, and this album definitely has both those things. It is it was it's more like you know how like guys like uh, uh, Michael Wagner or who's the guy that did um, a lot of the uh, the Motley Crue records, Tom Orman. Um, they or even Max Norman, they kind of produced records for hair metal in a way. Like they they knew what the sound was supposed to be. Where you, you're more bigger picture kind of guys that are looking at records that are, are, are from a broader audience would kind of produce things more like this was. And I think Dave Jordan kind of comes across that way. And the the handful, of, what was he, he did like a Red Hot Chili Peppers record or yeah, and he did um, he well, did I know Anthrax. The sound of white noise is coming up, but. Uh, he did Jane's Addiction. There, that's the one I was trying yeah. to think of. Uh, yeah, nothing oh. shocking. Yeah, and and I I was kind of surprised because I always had a hard time listening to that record sonically. I I just it, it's not very warm. You know what I mean? It's right. very abrasive. But that's kind of what Jane's Addiction sound is. Right. Um, anyway, I, we're probably getting a little too nerdy on some of the stuff, but to me, the way this this record was mixed and recorded, it kind of separates itself a little bit from from that that uh, glam metal. Well, Scott. I mean, Dave Jordan kind of aped Bob Rock on this record, especially with the drum sound. It's got a huge drum sound to it, which you don't hear on a lot of grunge records. One thing I wanted to bring up, though, was um, they had a roadie. like either, It was either the guitar tech or the drum tech. They had never worked with Alice in Chains before on their first big tour, the one with Extreme. They heard the record, and they're like, oh, these guys are they are never going to be able to pull this off live. This record is overproduced. I never right. thought that about this record. I think this record sounds actually pretty stripped down. Yeah, that guy sounds like an idiot to me who doesn't know what an overproduced record. Because you, you oh. mentioned Bob Rock to me, I'm thinking like Motley Crue, where it's like, yeah, you can kind of hear 900 layers of guitars and this thick thing. Sure. While this has a nice thick guitar tone, you can clearly hear guitar, bass, drum, vocal. You know, sure. Things are doubled and there's the harmonies, but this is well, not I, an example of an overproduced album. No, it's not overproduced. But like Sean, Ken- like I said, Sean Kenny is the unsung hero of the record. Yeah. Because because he's he's beating the living shit out of his drum sound. <laughs> tall for a drummer too. Most drummers aren't that tall. Seems like a douche to me. Like in interviews that I've seen, he seems like an asshole. But I think he's, he's just kind of no. I think this part is typical. He's just dumb. That's <laughs> as most drummers are. Like he, you know, and most drummers aren't aware that they're dumb. It all goes back to Kiss, and like one of my least favorite clips of him is after they played the Detroit Tiger Stadium show. He's showing off his tour book that he got signed by the whole band. He's like, Kiss tour book, 1977. Yeah, I saw that. By the whole band. But you don't have it. I'm like, fuck, fuck you. <laughs> he just pissed off. He got some autographs he wanted. <laughs> I was like, put me in a. He comes off like a high school douchebag. Well, did you get mad at Sebastian Bach and his cribs when he's like, he was like, "Do you have this signed? I do." And his pinball glass is signed wow. by Kiss. I'm I'm mad at him for a lot of reasons. Oh, that's mostly right. you guys are fighting. Mostly, yeah, he fucking hates us. <laughs> you just recently <laughs> talked about why too. What episode was that? Uh, well, Michael Wagner came on the show, talked about the making of Slave to the Grind and and the first record with Rachel, and he he was really kind about it, but he was just basically said took a lot of drum took a lot of takes to get. Sebastian's vocals down. Apparently, one of my friends wanted to meet Sebastian in Kentucky and mentioned the episode, and 
So I was like, oh, I don't like those guys. You know, tell, <laughs> tell, the fuck those guys and tell what? Michael I'll never work with him again. It's like, well, whatever, dude. I love Sebastian as a performer and a singer, but he's an overgrown 12-year-old. We talking about Allison Chains? Yeah, let's get back to Allison <laughs> Chains. We left on off of on Put You Down, right? Yes. Okay, I don't know if we got our ratings out there. I had four Mike Stars on that. I give it four. Okay. Up next, track 10 is Confusion. Yeah. favorite track on the record goes nowhere kind of just meanders along the whole time just does nothing for me i'd give it a two the chorus helps on 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 confusion but it's not a strong song in my bank or in my book either i i gave it i don't know to me this is a very front heavy record when we get to the second half is it's got its moments but the the weak spot seems to stick out here and this is one of them so i think we're on the same page there i gave it three and a half um up next is uh track 11 with i know something about you i hope you like this a little better this one a lot right. uh this one i give this one a four i uh and i it's an experimental track it almost sounds like allison chains doing a chili pepper song it's mm. got that little that funky sound to it i love uh i love mike star's bass playing on it it's uh you know it's a tad dated now because it sounds like something that would have come out in 1990 compared to what would come out now but i like it it's, it's a good song um it's probably a, it's a fill what i would call a filler track but it's what i would call killer filler okay I, maybe I like it a little better. You said you gave it a four, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I gave it a four, too. Uh, I, I agree with everything you just said, that little kind of Chili Peppers opening and the way it kind of even kind of funky groove to it all the way through. I know something about you. Yeah, it's 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 killer. Um, killer filler, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, four. And I ripped off this bass line also. For of one course of you songs. did. Uh, <laughs> apparently you were in an Allison Chains tribute band. <coughs> well, we might as well. Well, no. I mean, if you heard us, you'd be like, oh, it sounds like they're trying, but not good. <laughs> we well, were not good, trust me. Well, it's difficult. Lane Staley is a tough guy to fucking fill any uh, kind of void for. but uh, Yeah, we, and we could not fill that void, trust me. Yeah, not, not too many people can. Um, uh, but Sebastian Bach could. I, I, I think he tried on Cameo. Uh, <laughs> the album ends with real things. I grew up, went in a rehab, you know the 
take the lead on this one because it sounds like you have something to say about it this song is forgettable i don't really need it what yeah uh, nothing for me other than the end when he says sexual chocolate it used to make me chuckle but then i you know became an adult you don't like this song at all not really no i mean i like it more than um the the i can't remember or love hate love but it only got three and a half from me wow i love this song and it's funny that you, you thought the redeeming part was the sexual chocolate line. That's like the, the part that I don't like. That wasn't a compliment on the song when I said that. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. It's like, it definitely dates it to that time. Mm. No, I love it. I mean, well, it's one of those things where I was, what, 13, 14 when this came out. So it was like, you know, the whole drug culture thing and everything. Like it was it seemed kind of glamorous at the time before yeah. you get into it. So it, it was like one of those things where it's like, wow, that sounds really cool. Going down the steps on a white line straight to nowhere. That sounds – that's like some really cool druggy shit, you know. Right. Um, but I, it's catchy though. I love it and the whole – you know, the doctors – doctors, uh, the doctors never did me go good, no good. They said, son, you're going to be a new man. Thank you very much and can I borrow 50 bucks? I mean that's a funny line. Right. You know, I, I just – I love the whole – the whole fuck you, I'm going to snort blow whether you like it or not line, even though, you know, we see how that ended. But uh, at the time, it, it seemed cool when you're a teenager. You, you don't think that because um, we talked about whether or not he was introduced to heroin or, or drug stuff. This could almost be a sarcastic, almost like life's been good to me uh, kind of lyric you know, from Joe Walsh, um, where it's like almost like joking about oh i'm a rock star i got a fucking snort coke and everybody wants to borrow money from me all that kind of stuff it could have been a little more like lane's attempt at being a little bit satirical i don't think it was though <laughs> well, that's clear <laughs> <laughs> i think he was i'm think thinking was, maybe it was i don't know I, well he was i mean he was at least nose deep into blow at the time fair so enough. Yeah, well I, he I, was you know curious yeah but i, I just as a teenager listening to it, it was like, yeah, fuck the man. You know, it was like, you know, do drugs, get fucked up, throw your life away, treat yourself, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> well, this is a record that will always mean a lot to me. It, it definitely, you know, this is this is when I'm, you know, out on my own for the first time in my life. Uh, I, I'm broke. I'm in college. I, I'm doing all that kind of just bullshit, that, that, that stereotypical kind of crap. I'm also deciding I want to be a musician and not sure how I should transition. Like, how am I going to drop out of college, make money, move somewhere where I can play music, and, and, and so all that stuff. And this, Alice in Chains was very key in all that, from this to Dirt to, uh, well, Sap and um, uh, the other one, Jar of Flies, all that stuff that... 
every time they released something new, I was blown away by it. Um, and uh, there's other artists on this list at the t- at the time, but because this was a very coming of age time for me, I-, I do think I benefited by being the right age for hair metal when it came up. I you know I was 12 years old when Quiet Riot broke. And I was, uh, I think, 19 going on 20 when kind of this stuff was happening. I I look at it that way and think I was the perfect age for all this stuff. And this album will never, never be too far for me. Um, There's so many songs on this record that, that just still kick my ass. Uh, I, I'm I'm emotionally a little, hopefully a little, little further down the line. But I leaned on on, on bands like this to kind of, you know just feel something that was kind of fucking with you when you're dealing with testosterone and emotions and all that kind of gross crap that happens to you when you're just starting to grow pubes on your balls and stuff. So, <laughs> um, love it. Uh, I would give the album a five out of five. It's difficult because I do think dirt is one of the best records ever. So this ranks a little below that for me, but it's really not far. It really is kind of one, a one Bay for me. It's too bad that that's really the only two solid original album outputs we got with Jerry and Lane because as much as I love uh, Sean, you're right, underrated there, and I do think Mike Mike Starr added something. I think when, when Mike Inez came into the picture, it just kind of became a bass player, and which is fine. I mean, honestly, Jerry can do enough on his own. He doesn't need that, but this, this record is, is just a masterpiece. What a great way to open it up, and, and nice that they didn't have a sophomore slump. So I kick it to you, my esteemed colleague. And I'm not like a grunge aficionado. I mean, there was a lot of grunge stuff that I'd never even bothered listening to. So, I mean, I was I got in at the ground floor and, you know, 90 to 93 is around the main years that I listen to this stuff. So um, to me, it's the best grunge album ever made. I mean, I don't think there's anything that tops it. I would say that the Pearl Jam 10 record is close, but I would still listen to this before I would listen to that. But um it uh, it means a lot to me. I mean, it's it was there during a difficult time in my life. I, I went through the angsty teen years when this album came out, and it helped me through a lot of stuff. It also helped me kind of fantasize about rock star life and the bad decisions that go along with it. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it uh, it was a you know, like I said, I ripped off at least four different songs from this record from my own band. So that tells you how much influence it had on me. And it was like, and especially Jerry's guitar playing, it was like Ace Fraley with more soul, you know, was, uh, or, you know, like Tommy Iommi, Tony Iommi. Oh, I fucked that up. Um, but uh, it just, <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing record. There's no other Alice in Chains record I would put above it. I love, it would probably go facelift, then Jar of Flies and then Dirt for me. Wow. I do like, I do like Dirt, but there are moments on Dirt that I just think drag it down, but uh, into the Dirt. So they say, but uh, <laughs> I bet this album is a lot more influential than people give it credit for. I think it's it's definitely the underrated. Bridge. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm scared to say that in front of you, but uh, it's uh, it definitely falls in line with a lot of good stuff. But I, like I think uh, it's the bridge between hard rock and grunge rock because you've got. You can hear a little bit of their past because they were more of a glam band before Jerry joined the band. So you can hear p- parts of that and you can hear their influences. Like I said, you can hear ACDC and some of this stuff. You can hear Leonard Skinner and some of this stuff. So they do wear their their influences on their sleeve. So uh, overall, it's my favorite grunge record. So uh, thanks for having me on to do this. I really appreciate it. I'm going to go back. You, you, I think you made a good, good point. 
people don't really talk about this record in the sense that of the influence it had. But it was clearly there. Like all the guitar players I knew were learning this kind of stuff at the same time. You know what I mean? <laughs> as much as like I, I've, I'll, as a comparison, I've I've mentioned several times that I think Ace Freely, and even I'll throw Angus Young in that conversation. Either one of those guys influenced way more people to pick up a guitar and learn how to play than Eric Clapton ever did. Eric yeah. Clapton kind of appeals more to people who wish they could be Eric Clapton and never right. actually play anything. And that's not a shot. That's not taking anything away from his talent because there's a different oh. level there. But this, to me, is like the, the 90s, you know, I mean, Jerry Cantrell, more than anybody yeah. in Pearl Jam, more than anybody in Soundgarden, maybe not Nirvana because it was so easy to play. You might have been going, yeah, I'll fucking go play yeah. that. Um, but uh, Jerry Cantrell kind of got people to pick up a guitar. He might have oh, yeah. been one of the last guitar heroes, to be honest with you. Well, I remember um, at that time, you know, 90, 94 was when we recorded the demo. And I remember recording the demo and listening back to the mix and my singer looking at me from my solo saying, you want to be Jerry Cantrell. So like that tells you like he rubbed off on me. Yeah. So like, you know, he was a, he was a big influence on me and I know he got a lot of it from Iomi and Fraley, but you know, he was very influential for sure. He had his own style and sound though. I mean, as much as you can say that's, he also was you know, a Van Halen guy too, but yeah. Um, well, I had this coming in. So this came in at 15 in Rolling Stone. I move it all the way up to number seven on the on the overall list. Did I hear you correctly? You put this sucker all the way at number one? Best one. All right. Oh, overall. Well, Chris, uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Um, check out the Decibel Geek podcast. Although, I swear to God, there's zero people listening to our show that doesn't already listen to yours. Uh, but I like, to, I like to at least uh, throw it out there for that, Meech. If anything, it's the other way around. Uh, 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 hey, Decibel Geek listeners, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we appreciate the plug, but no, I'm sure you guys are doing just fine on your own. As always, the best to you and Aaron over there at Decibel Geek. Thanks again for coming on and being part of this. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> Whatever. All right, fair enough. Never mind. you know cherry pick two songs i mean like i said only two songs are kind of the the fair enough the slips on this oh. right everything else i love and now another no-brainer money-saving tip from progressive it looks like your luggage is over 50 pounds is there anything you can take out oh yeah let me just toss all these 20 dollar bills great let me grab you a trash can stop 
Instead of throwing money away, move some clothes into a carry-on. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hanson, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 